You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, if you happen to find yourself in Northwest Houston, August 12th, 2006, anybody? No? Uh, And you happen to stumble your way into a building that morning called the Cypress Creek Christian Church and Community Center Centrum in Cypresswood, AKA the CCCCCCCC. I'm not making that up. You would have come upon a very peculiar site. You would have entered into an ornate wood carved room with hundreds of people sitting there dressed to the nines, women in dresses, men in suit and tie. Your ears would be assaulted by a pipe organ in the front of the room, just beating out Baroque music, just the whole thing going down there. And right at the front of that room, you would see a beautiful young woman in a white gown with a veil over her face, standing next to an odd-looking man-boy with a white guy afro just trying to figure out life right up there. And the scene you would be seeing is a wedding. In fact, it is my wedding that you would be looking at. Uh, Now, you wouldn't know those things because when you went into the room, there's a big banner on the back wall that said, this is a wedding. You would know that because that room and those moments were infused with symbolic imagery that were conveying a reality, right? That when you go into that room, there's something being communicated. There is a covenant being made here between those two people and the decorum and the atmosphere and the liturgy and the rings and the music and the wardrobe is all saying something about the austerity of this moment and the sacredness of this moment and the holiness of this moment. These symbols are communicating something. Our symbols tell a story, yeah? We know this, the baptism this morning is a moment where we are doing symbolic acts to convey an actual reality. Our symbols tell a story. This is how it's always been in all cultures at all time. Our symbols tell a story. Now today, we enter into the next section of Paul's letter. We're, We're into three chapters here, and it's virtually all about this, how we conduct ourselves in the local church gathering. That's what, it, what it's about for the next three chapters. How, how do we navigate this thing we call the local church gathering? How should we be? How should we act? What should we do? What's all of those things. That's what's happening. And we've arrived at the beginning of that at what is honestly, you heard it, one of the most difficult to interpret passages in maybe the whole New Testament, maybe. And it is packed with symbols, packed with symbols. And it's hard because of that. We come to a passage like this and there's so many hard things. What do those symbols mean? What do the words Paul chose mean? What is he trying to say? What what was the relevant cultural data and context at the time that would make this make more sense to me? And if If I'm understanding even half of what it's saying, is Stonegate like ushering us into like a handmaid's tale? Like, is that what's coming for us? Like, we're just going to dugger it out now? Like, is that what I can expect from my local church? 
Do you see, it's, it's a really hard text, but what we're gonna see is that these symbols are actually doing what symbols have always done. They're telling us a story. They're telling a story that God really wants to be told. He wants this story told. And what today is, is really God inviting us to learn the story and then be good storytellers. That's what he's inviting us to do. Learn the story and be good storytellers. Now, here's the thing. Before we can tell this story with our symbols, we have to love the story. And that's really the real work ahead of us today. That, that what we're doing is we're actually learning not so much about what head coverings are and how they function now and if they function now. Do we, what we're doing is acknowledging that God's good design for, the, for how relationships work best is meant to be conveyed in our life. He's inviting us to love his design and then to love it enough that we put it on display in our lives. So yes, we're gonna get into all the tedium, a little bit of all the weirdness, right? We're gonna go there. But more importantly, I want us to come out on the other side of this thing going, hey, I see what God has designed for my relationships. Maybe I don't fully understand it all, Maybe it still feels a little opaque to me, but I trust that he's always up to my good. And so I'm going to embrace his vision of reality and I'm gonna express that in meaningful ways in the world around me. That's what he's saying. That would be a very Christian way to engage this topic today. So I'm hoping we're all coming with that kind of posture. So, so we gotta ask this question, what is the reality that he's trying to convey in this passage for us today? What is that reality that our symbols are, are pointing to? We gotta make sense of that. Uh, so let's, let's deal with that now. Before we jump into the text, um, let me give you a, a little bit of a cultural lay of the land, like what's happening uh, in this moment? What on earth is going on? This is gonna require some audience participation, okay? Uh, okay, the problem apparently... <clears throat> Apparently, the church in Corinth is gathering together for worship. We're getting this from the context, right? The, the, the church of Corinth is gathering together for worship. Here's the participation part. Good or bad? Good. This is great. Okay. And men and women, specifically husbands and wives, are participating in various ways in the church service. Good or bad? The men in service are prophesying and praying. Good or bad? Good. The women are in service, prophesying and praying. Good or bad? Good. Paul's answer is good. Verse five, he assumes this is happening. It's a good thing. By the way, like the most oppressive text in the Bible, isn't that oppressive? The women are in this church prophesying and praying. We would affirm that. We, th there is space even in this Corinthian church and even in our church for these things to take place. We, the enablement of women to flourish in their gifts is a good thing. If you were in uh, our redemption groups this weekend, you would have seen women teaching. We have a woman's teaching lab that we do here to equip women to handle scripture well. So it's a good thing. Those things are happening. Good. The problem is some of these women, some of these wives are doing that thing without a covering on their head. Good or bad? Paul says bad. Okay. 
Now, I'm sure we all see the immediate relevance for our lives right now, but in case it's a little opaque to you, let me uh, unpack it. There is something Paul sees in this act or non-act, right, of not covering, that's harmful to the church that he's going to spend 14 verses correcting. Now, we hear that and we go, dude, why? I mean, like, there's only so much real estate in the Bible. We're going to, this, 14 verses on this. At best, they got a wardrobe issue, Paul. Why, why 14 issue, uh, verses on a wardrobe issue? But what Paul's going to look at us and say is, you see it as a wardrobe issue. I see it as a worship issue. That that's what's actually going on behind things. It's not a wardrobe problem, but it's a worship problem. Because he's about to say there's a reality that God has baked into our relationships that he wants our symbols to affirm. And when you don't do that, when you don't embrace the symbol, you aren't embracing God's reality. That's the issue for Paul. So it's not a wardrobe problem. It is a worship problem. Do you see the difference? So what is the reality that he's wanting to convey? Let me say, say it in like a short sentence for you. God has ordained an order of leadership that makes life work best. That's what he's saying. Look at verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, pretty self-explanatory. I think we can move on. I'm just kidding. All right. Um, what did he say? He said, there's a reality going on here, verse 3, that we should be expressing with symbolic gestures here, verse 4 and 5. That's what he just said. What is the reality? The Bible calls this reality headship. Headship. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Please don't leave. If we want to understand Paul's point, we have to understand his words. This is how you understand anybody's point. I got to know what you mean when you say that word, yeah? So the duty before us right now for the next few minutes is to figure out what he means when he says the word head. Because if we can figure that out, we're going to figure out the rest of the text, what he's up to. What does Paul mean when he says the word head? How you answer that question will determine so many things for you downstream theologically. It will determine how you understand Christian marriage. It will determine how you understand pastoral leadership in a church. A lot of things flow downstream from this, so it's important we get this. So we're going to camp here for just a bit. What does he mean by head? There's three options. Three options it could mean, okay? The first option is this. He could mean a head. Right? Right? He could mean a head. Now, I don't think that's what it means because I don't think I am my wife's physical head. That would make for a very unattractive lady. I don't think, I don't think it's that. So you're left with two other options. It's not head. It could either be source or it could be authority. 
Now, what do I mean by those two words? Well, source, think about the word head, how we could use head, like a fountainhead or the head of a river, right? It's the place where things originate from. They start at. So, so to say something is the head is to say something is the source of a thing. It could mean that. But does it? Maybe, maybe not. There are godly people who think it does. I just want to say this. Uh, Eve came from Adam's side right? So in some ways, the, the man is the head of the woman. He's the source of woman because a woman came from man. So I could see that, yeah? But then Christ is the head of a man. Is that true? Well, yes, he's the head of every man. He's the head of everything though, isn't he? Because Colossians 1 tells me he made everything. So he is the origin story of you and you, right? He's the origin story of Everybody, not just the man. So that's a little curious to me, but even more curious is to say that God is the head or source of Christ. Do we want to say that? That, that? that God is the origin of Jesus as if maybe Jesus was made. We know Paul doesn't believe that. The new, whole New Testament testifies Jesus is not a created being. He is eternally God the Son, Right? And, and there's no other place in, in all of the New Testament where Paul is addressing the eternal generation of the Son uh, from the Father. So it's unlikely that he's saying that. I think that's a, that's a, that doesn't work. Let me just show my cards for a second uh, and tell you what I think it means. I think the word head here means authority. Now let me defend that for a second. Uh, there are, in Greek literature, outside of the Bible, there are over 50 places that we uh, have discovered um, th- th- a sentence like this existing. Uh, person A is the head of person B. We have over 50 moments in ancient Greek literature where it's saying that. And in every one of those instances, in the context, head means authority. That that person is in charge of or is in leadership of that person B. Okay? So 50 instances, all of them, that same meaning. But that's not why I'm compelled. Here's the reason I'm compelled. I promise this will matter in a little bit, okay? The reason I'm compelled is because this is not the only time Paul has said this sentence, that the man is ahead of woman. The other time he said this sentence is in Ephesians. And we know this verse, Ephesians chapter five. I'm just gonna read it to you. This is read in almost every wedding, so you've probably heard it before. And I want you to look at what Paul connects headship with in this context. Same words in the Greek. What does he connect it with? Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for or because the husband is the head of the wife. Now, do you see the connection he just made? Headship is connected with submission. That's authority, that's leadership taking place. I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. So with that in mind, let me attempt a paraphrase of verse three for you. Because again, this is not our context. We, help, help us get some language around this. What is he saying? Let me give you a paraphrase of verse three to, to help put a little bit of training wheels on this for you, okay? Uh, paraphrase. Verse three, God has designated the husband as the authority or the the leader of his wife in a way that is exerted for her flourishing. And that husband submits to, reports to Christ Jesus as his authority for how he's leading his wife. 
And Christ Jesus voluntarily submits himself to the Father and his authority as well. That's what I think Paul is saying in this verse. And if you agree that that's what this text is saying, congratulations. You've just been inaugurated into the thrilling world of complementarianism. Bet you didn't even know that was a word. Here it is. There's the word. 19 syllables and counting. Uh, saw that? Anybody? No? Complementarianism. It gets a bad rap, but let me just make sense of it for you. Complementarianism is a way of talking about this reality, that in God's good design, men and women complement each other in unique ways that, that, that they, they play toward each other, they play roles that in certain contexts, they operate like this, and that leads to their flourishing. That's what complementarian is, that, that me and my wife come together in, in a way that we are each fulfilling different, distinct roles from each other, but when we come together, we are more than the sum of our parts. We complement each other, and we're able to thrive and flourish together as we come together. So that's kind of the idea, and what Paul is saying is, hey, that thing that I just said, that thing is the reality. And there's a cultural way we communicate this reality, guys. He's saying in our culture, this is Paul talking, a, a woman covering her head is a way to communicate her joyful submission to her husband in marriage. But some of you ladies out there, what you're doing is abandoning this symbol as if to say, I belong to no man. And by abandoning the symbol, you're diminishing the reality. And we love the reality. And so I'm inviting you to symbolize this reality in your life. Does that make sense? Maybe not. <laughs> um, I need to illustrate this because we are, we are, thousands of miles away and thousands of years away from this moment. We are living in a cultural moment where this symbol of covering your head doesn't mean anything to us, right? For you to put a, a shawl over your head, it, it's not saying when you're covering up, oh, I'm married, and when I'm uncovered, it's like you want a date. It's not saying that in our culture. That's not, it, it carries none of that freight, but it did for them. That's why this text always feels so weird for people. They're like, so I have to cover my, this is, it doesn't mean anything here. This is why there's no bin in the back of bonnets for you when you walk out to grab one, when you take your Honda, okay? That's, it's not gonna happen because this particular symbol carries no cultural freight. No, it, it doesn't matter in our culture, but we do have symbols that do matter in our culture that do communicate something of this reality, yeah? So take, for example, the almost universal practice of a wife taking her husband's last name. Even in secular pockets of our culture, over 70% of the women in those pockets are doing that practice. They are taking their husband's name and exchanging their last name for his. In, in only two to 3% of the cases in America is that reversed, is the husband taking the woman's name. It's just not done here. Now that might not mean the same thing for everybody doing it, it might just be a habit, but do you see, this is an import from Christianity. This is a Christian idea. It has historically been a way for a wife to say, hey, I am now coming under my husband's loving care and his leadership. That's what it's communicating. 
Now, look, I, we're in a big room. Uh, I get, there may be people in this room who got married and then didn't take their husband's last name, okay? And what, I am not charging you with sin right now. There's no verse in the Bible that says you have to do that thing or else you're in sin, right? And there could be a hundred legitimate reasons for you not to have done that particular thing. We're in gray territory, not black and white territory. So don't feel a rebuke from me in this. That's not what this is. But I am saying this, and this is what Paul's getting at. If, for instance, in our culture, a woman got married to a man and rejected his last name in an effort to say, I am beholden to no man. That is a problem for Paul. Because that betrays that you don't love the reality. That betrays that you want to stick it to the reality. And what we want to do is be a people who love the reality so much we symbolize it with our lives. Does that make sense? Now, at this point, um, you may understand what I'm saying intellectually, right? What I'm saying is God has created a system of leadership that he loves called headship, and it's how life works best, and we ought to be people who love it so much that we wear it on our sleeve or our head. But it may still gross you out, right? You may understand the, the fact of it, but it may still feel so offensive to us. There are people, maybe some of you are in here, who really love Jesus. You really do. But you say, gosh, if that's what this text means, that feels awful to me. That feels oppressive to me. That feels medieval to me. That feels like you just told me women are way down here on the bottom of the totem pole. They're, they're these less than creatures and men and then Christ and then God. Those are the ones that count. This, this feels like all of the things that the world hates Christians for. I can actually sympathize with that. This, this is a hard text and there are things that rub against the grain of how we understand the world and how it works. And Paul actually sympathizes with that. He seems to be understanding that his readers aren't persuaded yet, so he's actually gonna say two more things that bring clarity to what he just said. And the first thing he's gonna say is that this reality I'm just painting for you guys is actually filled and flooded with dignity. It's flooded with dignity. Look at verse seven. He says this. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of glory and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Remember Eve taken out of Adam's side, Genesis 1? Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Do you remember in Genesis, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'll create a helper suitable for him. So he made Eve, right? Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. I know what you're thinking. You promised me some dignity in that verse. <laughs> it's worse than it was. What on earth? Are you, you just told me woman is the glory of a man? Like she's a little trinket. He brings out, shows to his friends. Look what I got, right? Is that what, is that what it said? Let's settle down. <laughs> Let's look a little closer. What does it mean to be someone's glory? Well, if the woman really is the glory of a man, what does it mean to be someone's glory? Can I tell you what I think it means? I think it means 
To be someone's glory is to pay them an immense compliment just by you being you by them. I think that's what it means. That you are, that you are so valuable that simply by your association to this person, it makes them shine a little brighter. I experienced this when me and my wife uh, walk into a party or a wedding, right? And we show up and the double doors come in, we come in and her arm is through my arm and she's just looking all the ways and she, we walk into the place, right? I'm, I'm feeling a type of way now, y'all, that I would not be feeling if she was not right there. Something about her, her glory. Her, her inner and outer beauty, and then her daring to associate herself with this chump, right? And I walk, I am better for it. I am actually glorified by my wife tethering herself to me. It is my glory for her to be with me. Do you see how this is actually a, a dignity flooded truth that we are looking at right now? This statement is about a woman's Dignity. Proverbs 12, 4 says it like this. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Do you hear that? She's his crown. She's his glory. So a wife embracing this symbol, in this case it, it was covering her head, it's like her slipping her arm through her husband as they walk into the room together. It bestows him with honor and dignity himself. It communicates glory to him. It glorifies him. The wife is the glory of the husband. The woman is the glory of the man. Headship is a dignified thing. Do you see that? Now, just in case you weren't convinced yet, uh, and, and there's some misgivings here, Paul's gonna clarify one step further. There's not just dignity here, but he's gonna go the final step, and he's gonna say there is also, in this vision for our life and how we relate to each other, especially as husband and wife, there's, there is equality here. Our roles may be different, but our worth, our worth is the same. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Right? So I don't know if you know this, but every one of y'all in this room has a mama, right? After the Eve, Adam side moment, and, and it was woman from man, guess what it was every other time after that? Man from woman, right? That's what Paul's saying. It's not, it's just science. It's just right there, right? That, that, that when we look at this thing from another angle, Paul said, it is not a totem pole status building thing. It is not a you on bottom, me way up here. It's not that thing. Paul's saying, when you look at this rightly in the Lord, there is radical equality here. There's dignity, but there's also radical equality. Yes, woman came from man, but man also comes from woman. And in the end, he says, all things are from God. So now you see the whole picture. Yes, the reality of headship means God has men and women playing different roles toward each other in certain settings marriage, pastoral leadership. But Paul is saying difference in role does not mean difference in worth. That's what he's saying. There is a radical equality in the Lord. Complementarity means difference in role, sameness in worth. That's what it means. And can I just tell you how radical this was? 
maybe it doesn't feel radical to you, but to every other culture on the planet, at any other time in history, every other worldview, every other religion, that nobody was talking like this in the first century, guys. This, Chris, this Christian vision of life and relationships, what, Christianity is alone on the podium with how much dignity and worth and value and equality it bestowed on women in its day. It's breathtaking. It's unprecedented in history. So yes, God has made men and women distinct. Yes. And yes, husbands are the primary leader in their home. And yes, a wife is to come under his leadership gladly. But we're both playing for the same team, right? He may be the quarterback and she may be the running back but we're both losing for the Cowboys. <laughs> we're on the same team. We're playing for the same prize. We're on the same team. And we are both equal in the eyes of our coach. We're both equal before our God. So let me summarize real quickly. The reality of headship is good. It's invented by God and it's flooded with dignity and equality in the Lord. That's what he's saying. Uh, I want to comment on this now. So I have three concluding thoughts, and then we're going to be done. What can we say about all this? Does this text even matter besides, ladies, take your man's last name? is Is that our takeaway this morning? I do think that's a takeaway. Is that all that can be said? No, I think there's more to be said. Let me give you three closing thoughts and then we're gonna be done. Uh, here's the first. If I was to um, take the truths of this, like what's at the heart of it, and I was to apply it more broadly, I might say something like this. It is not only right for us to find culturally appropriate ways to celebrate God's design in marriage, but it's equally right for us to find culturally appropriate ways to celebrate God's design in everything. Or to say it another way, we are not allowed to blur the good distinctions God has given between men and women. Do you see how immediately relevant this is for us? This text is not giving us permission to blur those lines. God has made a good thing when he made us gendered people. And it is our privilege to be able to, with our symbolism, our wardrobe, our fit, the way we carry ourselves, and all of these, it is our privilege to get to say to the world, God did a good thing when he made me like this. Forget about politics. Is it, is it red or blue? It's not Democrat. Or, it's not, for, this is about God. God has made you like this and it's good. And we have the opportunity to say with the decisions we make, the clothes we choose, there's no morally neutral ground here. It's not just, I just, I like this and you like that and we do that. It's not like that. God has done a thing and there are, there are symbols of that in our culture that convey that thing and we should embrace that culture to culture. It's a way that we get to honor God. I think that's one general truth that we can take out of this besides just the niche thing of head coverings, okay? Here's the second thing. <laughs> K 
Can you be willing to follow a text wherever it leads you, despite your preferences? Here's a terrible way to study the Bible. Oh, Paul can't mean that because I don't like that. Therefore, Paul can't mean that. That's just bad math. That's not how it works. We don't get to do that. What if on the other side of submitting to God's vision for your life is something beautiful? and awesome and good and lovely, even if you can't see it right now. Even if it requires, wait for it, faith for you to embrace it. Would you embrace it? What if he's right? What if the text means what it seems to mean? What if the Bible really teaches that the husband is the spiritual head of his wife and that a wife is to submit herself to her husband's good leadership and that husband is to humbly love and sacrifice for his wife. Could that be beautiful to you? When a woman says to her husband, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust where you're taking us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give my trust to you. I'm gonna find ways to empower you and build you up and let you lead me. And the husband to take that entrustment and go, I'm gonna steward this thing well. I'm gonna keep pointing you back to Jesus. I'm gonna keep working towards your flourishing. I'm gonna keep laying down my preferences, laying down my time, laying down my everything to see you thrive. What if that's how it was meant to be? What if this was how we were meant to thrive? Some of us are so turned off by words like complementarity and submission and authority I'm just asking you to consider how much of your resistance has come from our culture and not from the text. Follow the texts where they lead. And then the last thing, and we're going to be done. 1 Corinthians 11, where we're at today, is not the only place where Paul gives us this vision of headship. We've already touched on it once this morning. The most famous place he's talked about it is the one that's read at every wedding. It's Ephesians chapter five. And in that text, Ephesians five, after explaining basically the exact thing I just said here in this text, after saying all of that, he makes this comment in verse 32. And I want you to listen carefully. Because this is the beauty of it all. This mystery, he says, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Behind this whole thing, we, I've been talking for 40 minutes, behind this whole thing, of how husbands and wives relate to each other stands this ultimate reality, and that is Jesus and his bride, us, the church. In other words, what all this is ultimately doing is not telling a story, it's telling the story. 
the way we interact with each other as gendered bodies, men and women, and specifically husbands and wives, the way we interact with each other is saying something about the most important story that has ever been to the world. It's a story about a groom, Jesus, who loved his bride so much that he actually laid down his own life to purchase her, redeem her, wash her, rescue her, position her in a way that she could enjoy him forever. And for that bride, the church, to willingly from this point forward, submit herself to his good, loving, tender leadership into eternity. That's the story that our little stories and symbols are telling. And all of a sudden, all this gets flooded with so much more meaning than just God told me so. It's even bigger than God told me so. It's we're pointing to Jesus. And we have the chance, not just with our symbols, but with our very lives and, and our relationships and how we interact with people, to mimic the greatest story that's ever been told. Our symbols don't just tell a story. They tell the story. And that's what we're being invited into in this passage. Yeah? Let's pray. That was a lot, Father. And there's no way that there weren't things in this passage that were sideways pills for maybe many of us. And Lord, I, I just don't know how we make it as Christians, God, if you don't help us push back our vision of living and life and relationships and how this thing should work to embrace your vision. I don't, I don't know how we're gonna survive unless your Holy Spirit helps us embrace your word for us. And God, I, I do believe the question before us today is, will we trust you? Have you ever failed? Have you ever led me astray? Have you ever taken me by the hand and taken me to a bad place for a bad reason? Have you ever done that? You've never done that, God. You are faithful. We can trust you. You're a rock. We stand on you. We have confidence in you. And so God, if that is the vision you have for us, God, help us to be humble enough to embrace it. I pray that this would move the needle for somebody in this room today, that they could, they could settle this issue for themselves and they could joyfully walk in how you've designed them to live. So God, please do that. In Jesus' name, amen.